Lamb, the Lamb that was slain, forever we will worship, we will sing, we will stand before you and proclaim that you are the Lord. Come and celebrate. Come and celebrate the name above all names. Lift up your voice and sing to a worthy king. Raise your hands up high for a sacrifice. Give a shout of praise. Let our creation sing. Sing it again. Come and celebrate. Oh, come and celebrate the name above all names. Lift up your voice and sing to a worthy king. Raise your hands up high for a sacrifice. Give a shout of praise. Let all creation sing. Oh, we sing. Holy is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. Whenever we will worship, we will sing. We will stand before you and proclaim that you are the Lord. Father's Day to all you dads. We're going to sing a song here. It's called uh, Hug a Dad's Neck, Hug a Dad Neck to you. Hug a Dad's Neck and sing La La. Where's all my salty people at? 
Y'all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, once you guys stand up on your feet, find a dad, really, and hug their neck. Good morning, everybody. Come on. Gosh, it's like a funeral. What's going on? It's Father's Day. Now, let me give some. 
That was weird, too. All right, let me give you some context uh, of why this matters, why it matters, uh, why fathers matter. Because we do live in a culture that is, uh, and, and maybe there's some reasons for it or whatever, but it is um, reducing the influence of manhood and fatherhood. Uh, I, I want to tell you something you probably already know, but the reason God invented fathering and mothering is for a visual proclamation of the relationship that God wants to have with us. You do know that, right? Oh, about three of you knew that. The fact is that God's unchanging plan was to what, according to Ephesians 1.5? Adopt us. It wasn't, and we're going to talk about this a little later, it was not to keep you out of hell. I mean, that, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and many of us came to God because we didn't want to go to hell, and that's a good start. But God wanted an intimate relationship with humanity that had run away from him. And the only way to do that was to adopt us and make us his kids. And the only way to do that is to buy us back. Sin had separated us from God. So he sent Jesus to pay the price for our sin so that, according to Galatians and Ephesians, we could be adopted into the family of God. Why? Because he wants to be your daddy. He wants to be your daddy. And for some of you who didn't have a healthy daddy, that's, that's a hard to fathom that. But looking around you this morning... It is God's plan, men, that ladies and children and other men can look at us and say, gosh, I want to be loved by that. Oh, yeah, I am by God. Fatherhood is a spiritual thing that God has given us. It's a gift so that the world can see just how in love with this God is. And whenever I do a wedding, and I, it's always a privilege, but uh, I, I always stand up before the wedding really gets going, and I have the groom, he's standing next to me, and you know the bride comes down the aisle, and her dad walks her down theoretically, and and we stand up there, and before, uh, before I ask who gives this woman to this man, I explain that there's a picture, and that is that we are walking down the aisle of life ultimately to our groom. Every relationship in, in, in life that God has invented is a picture of God's love for us. And uh, that's why fathers matter. That's why Father's Day matter. And that's why Satan wants to remove that role. That's why Satan wants to do that. The role of father as pastor of a family as provider, as protector, as NRA member. Those are all important things in God's economy. I know, I'm just kidding. I just threw that in there. But that's what matters. And what I, one of the things that's a privilege about perfect timing, it's like we choreographed that. Um, one of the cool things that I really want you to understand is this stuff isn't th theory and it isn't just doctrine. It is true. And because it's true, we have tried as elders to think about ways to encourage godly fathering. When a father walks with God, when he is discipling his child, we think it's a privilege for him to be able to baptize his kid. And that is the situation we have this morning with Michael baptizing Kendall, right? And uh, what a Father's Day thing. And uh, I, I want to say, first of all, if you are a father, lead your family to Jesus. Don't leave it up to your wife. That's very Southern of you. Walk with God. Lead your family spiritually. And I can tell you, that although the family's imperfect, Michael and his wife and the kids love Jesus. And I put that imperfect in there because I don't want you to lift him up on the standard. But he's up there because he wants to pastor his family. And now that I put that on your back, Michael, um, why don't you share with us, Kendall, when did you come to know Jesus? Um, when you were four years old. And uh, that we are so proud of you. And uh, one of the things we want to make clear is that this isn't what saves you. This is a public expression that I have been saved. When we put, take somebody and he's going to baptize her down into the water, it's safer than putting her in dirt. 
It's, uh, it's, it's a picture of being crucified to self and being resurrected with Christ and being a child of God. And, and Kendall understands that her life now belongs to the Lord. That she's put on this planet not just to be a, a, a nice lady and a good citizen of this country, but actually to be a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And she, this, actually we kind of push back. Our parents often push back on children who want to be baptized. And that gives us a chance. And Alicia's met with her uh, to understand that, look, this is, you're saved. This is about saying to everybody, looking, I'm going to walk with God. And uh, we had three people last week baptized and one this week. What, a, what an incredible wealth of discipleship we have going on right now. What a blessing you guys, right? This is why we exist. We exist for this. And this is a part of that. So we're proud of you. Michael, you want to share anything before you baptize her? So why don't you baptize your daughter? Baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't leave just yet. Grandma, Grandma Sheila's going to come up. Why don't you come on up? And she's going to pray for her granddaughter and their family. Dear God, thank you for this day and for this baptism of Kendall. Just lift her up in your spirit and love. And I pray that she will always be dedicated to you and that she will obey your commandments and love you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to walk this way. Actually, I'm going to have Alicia walk this way. Uh, we just finished. Actually, this room, we'll go, we'll go over there. This, this room was a, I only was here one day for it because I've been at a conference all week, but it was VBS awesome. And uh, I asked Alicia to come up and share with you how the week went, so I'll do that. Well, we got started last week with CLEAR being leading us in worship. Remember that? And our huge section of CLEAR students that um, were here for the week and got us started off on a great note. Um, but the cool thing, it's not just that CLEAR was here and our uh, so many Carpenter's Way helpers pitched in and Bible study classes, donated food and time and serving as necessary and wonderful as all of that was. Um, our prayer team was very vigilant in praying every day at 10 o'clock in the library, um, even before our week started, people at, at home. And y'all, God just totally honored that. We had seven Carpenter's Way children get saved just from our own congregation. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, but a total of 21 <laughs> students that, yes, praise God for that. That is, you know, and you pray for God to tenderize hearts, and you pray for a harvest, and when it happens, it's like, whoa, did, did this really just happen? You know, why are we surprised when God answers prayers? I don't know. But we are truly uh, blessed by what God, the work that God did. And every year, it's like God plant seeds, begins a work, and it even carries on through the year, and kids remember and excited about coming back to Bible school the next year, and so we, there was just a great harvest, and you all were a part of that through prayer, through um, just your support and, and love and, and food and snacks. You think, well, how is that so important to Bible school? It is. It is. Um, in your worship guide, there is even offering totals. Yes, you've probably heard that the boys won the offering contest. So, which is cool, you know, I was good with that, with the silly string, it was good. Um, but all for Cassidy Everlin, who is a Carpenter's Way member and works, uh, actually is on the island of Haiti now in an orphanage in his hands, um, 
orphan ministry, which she's a part of, so that funding is going to go support her. She has to fundraise, and that's going to help her. And um, so thank you so much. And Casey Carley, she is, was my right-hand lady. She's actually serving in preschool this morning, but she coordinated the morning team, and then I coordinated afternoon, and it was thank you so, so much. I could go on, but I need to stop. We've got <laughs> more worship and praise uh, to, uh, to celebrate today. Thank you, Alicia. Alicia, for those of you who don't know, runs our children's uh, department uh, with Jeff, and uh, who is our executive pastor overseeing all that, and she's got a phenomenal team. Uh, if you would like to thank her and Casey, they could use some coffee. So, uh, Starbucks cards. But, but listen, um, all of the programming, it's fine, but when souls are saved, a hundred years from now, what I preach in about a half hour isn't going to be remembered. What matters is those young lives that came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Um, and uh, 21 of them. And that's not the only way we count success. Last year, nobody came to know the Lord, but we discipled and, and, and things were planted. So I just want to remind you that the reason we exist is not just to sit in a room and hug each other and, and, and learn theology, but it is, it is to tell people that there is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope there's not hope in politics. There's not hope in, in good health. There's hope not in wealth, but in Jesus Christ. That is the message of the church. And, and uh, pray, pray, pray. In fact, um, you know, I, I know that uh, when they, they clean this room up, Alicia goes, ah, oh, and kind of exhales. Okay, we got that over. But things actually ramp up now. For instance, our, our junior high and senior high student ministry goes to camp tomorrow. So uh, they, they kick off, and, and we put an orange insert in with the names of staff and campers that are going, and, and we're begging you to pray for God to do a mighty thing in their lives. They go up, uh, they're going up to a mission camp at, uh, um, up in Marshall, uh, they'll, they'll, uh, and, and so be praying, please. They'll be doing ministry in the community, and then hearing about how God wants to use you in life, and uh, pray for the staff that they'll have strength and that they will be touched. Uh, pray for our students. Look at all those kids going. Um, those are all people that God wants to work in their lives. So please, we beg of you to pray. The Holy Spirit is the one that transforms lives. And, and so would you please put this on your dinner table and, and pray every night for these kids. And uh, um, powerful, powerful things. And also in here, we got people going through stuff. Larry Brevard starts some medical treatment this week. We want to be praying for him. And, and I hate to start mentioning people because there's tons of people that need prayer. Please be praying for each other. Um, I'm going to ask our ushers at this time to come forward. Uh, as we prepare for our offering, uh, this this part of our service, the offering is for those who attend here regularly. If this is not your home church, we ask you not to give. We're just glad you're here. We do not want you distracted with money. Um, this, uh, what we take the offering for, uh, it goes uh, for, we participate with the Southern Baptist Convention in supporting over 6,000 ministry uh, missionaries globally. We just, I was there, uh, I was privileged to be there this week when we commissioned 60 more missionaries to go. And there's about 100 that are going to go ne next year. Uh, and, and their purpose is to reach people for Jesus and then to plant churches and disciple. And, and it's, a, it's just a wonderful time to be serving the Lord. Uh, it's a wonderful time. So uh, also, of course, to pay the bills and the staff. But if, you're not, if this is not your home church, don't give. This is for those who are attending regularly. We're just glad you're here this morning. We're going to be in a few minutes in 1 Samuel 24. I'll be preaching out of there. Before that, we're going to sing some more of worship to our daddy in heaven. And uh, we're just so glad you're here. And if you're visiting with us today, I'd love to shake your hand after the service. And uh, Julie and I will be up here, and, and we'd love to hug, you, hug your neck and introduce you. And um, So let's, let's pray. Father God, um, thank you. 
Thank you for 21 eternal lives that are now in your hands. Thank you for chasing us even as children. Thank you for sending your son 2,000 years ago to die on the cross so that young people and old people alike can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And I pray, Father, that if there's somebody here today who does not know you, that today they would allow you to adopt them into your family. Uh, Father, this is Father's Day, and, and we'd be foolish. We, we are all aware that some people don't like this day. It's a, it's a hurtful day because it reminds them of a painful upbringing. Father God, you want to adopt them out of that. You want to give them hope as their dad. And I pray that instead of sitting and wallowing in the pain of the past, that they would look to you and run to you, embrace you, Father. We love you, Father. We're thankful that you love us, and I pray you would bless our time together today. Uh, bless those who give this morning. We pray we know that you promise to provide all your needs according to your glory, and we pray you will do that. And now as we turn our face away from programming and the things of this last week, to you, Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself and transform the way we see life from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus, you're my hope and stay. So teach, so teach my soul to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand off fall on you, Jesus, you're my hope and When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life.
That's my favorite song. I know I say anyone every week. But, you know, I wonder, I wonder how it would change our life if we realized that the money in our wallets was God. Or if, if our children that are uh, whatever, good day, bad day, that our children actually aren't ours, they belong to the Lord. I wonder how it would affect our lives if we realized that our lives, the very breath in our lungs isn't ours, and therefore we need to tithe it back to Him every day. We need to surrender it to Him. What a powerful song. I... Um, Gosh. Uh, I, for those of you who know, uh, this week I went to the SBC convention, Southern Baptist Convention convention. Um, and, uh, uh, man, I, I was so blessed. I, I got to tell you, I know that's surprising about three-quarters of you who know me because I have not been a Southern Baptist convention guy, but at least right now for the day I am. 
Um, I was blown away uh, to sit among 15,000 people that represent 46,000 churches, 15 million people, with dozens and dozens of Bible schools and six seminaries all getting up and proclaiming that they are committed absolutely to the Word of God as final authority, to the gospel. Uh, uh, you have heard, I'm sure you've read online or on the paper, that we have had some issues, and there's no doubt issues. But the reason we know about them, I found out this week, because they don't have any secrets. I mean, my goodness, some of you have been to a convention. Everybody, Anybody gets a mic who wants to, and I'm telling you, there's some weird people in the convention. But... But I, it is an amazing thing to watch discussion take place. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion that needs to take place. Because although we have, for the life of the convention, uh, held that the Bible is the final authority, there's been a lot of stuff taken out of context in order to hold people back and abuse people. And that's being owned now by the next generation of leadership. And I was surprised. I was surprised. I went because I'd never been. You know, I've been in a, a pastor of a Southern Baptist church now for 13 years, and I've never been. And uh, I, uh, I went to the elders and said, I think with stuff going on, we need to be aware. And I'm, I'm telling you, I think the thing we, I had already mentioned, we dedicated 60, I think like 60 new missionaries to full-time ministry. Uh, and then there's another 100 coming down the pipe that next year will be dedicated. For some of you who know, the International Mission Board has had some financial troubles and retired some missionaries, but man, that ship has been righted, and now they're starting to send people left and right again, which is why we gather. You know, this is, this is why we do this out there. We gather with these 46,000 churches to tell the world that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, we had Mike Pence come speak, and it was the least of my favorite things they did. Uh, I think he's a fine, godly man, but it was a, it was a, uh, uh, it was a political speech, and I think it's the last one that will ever be at the convention. And which is a good thing. We had business to do, and uh, most of those people are conservative, but there was a pretty sense that, you know, thank you, but let's not do this again. We're here for Jesus. And lots of folks are not Trump-Pence voters, and uh, that's their right. But we still need to offer Jesus to people, right? No matter where we are in the political spectrum. And uh, issues were dealt with as it relates to one of the seminaries, and there's an interim president that got up there. It was awesome. I mean... I mean, this guy was boring and theological and passionate for the word and discipling young men and women into the ministry. And I'm, in, I'm one of 15,000 people there. I'm crying. I'm going, wow, we're in good shape. You know, you're, you guys know what it's like to have a family. And everybody's got a drunk uncle. Well, we've got about 25% of our convention that's drunk uncles. But they don't have the authority. God is blessing and he's working. And you guys know that for 13 years I have said I'm not an SBC guy, I'm not even a Southern Baptist, well, I am now. Until they get stupid. Because I'm telling you, what God is doing globally through this organization that we are participating with, by the way, God is not a Baptist, okay? He's not an assembly of God, he's not a, he's not a Presbyterian. I'm just saying to associate with this the largest evangelical missions organization in the world, which is what we are, that's a phenomenal privilege. That's a phenomenal privilege. It is a, it, and that is what it is. It is an uh, evangelical uh, sending agency. And I walked through this huge hall at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center, and there's hundreds of booths all centered on the gospel and understanding and teaching the Word of God to people across the globe. Man, it was like, whoa. 
And to hear these people sing, and then to get up and, and interact and, and call for, let's be humble even if we disagree. I mean, it was, it was cool. And like I said, I know those, many of you know me really well, and you're probably shocked that I, 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 I'm, I, was, I was refreshed. I was refreshed. We are not a monolith of thought. We are agreed on two things, that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and the final authority for truth is the Word of God. And within that, we can have discussion. And there are some wrongs that has to be right. We have to relook at the way we look at women within the understanding of Scripture. Uh, this year, it has come being unclear that too many of us who are what's called complementarians, and I'm taking time to do this because you need to know this, that means that men and women's roles within the family and the church complement each other. One isn't better than the other, they complement. But there are biblical mandates for certain positions of leadership. For instance, elder. As far as deacons, it's fine. Women can ro function in those roles. And it's not that one are smarter than the other. It's just the way that God laid it out. But there is room to discuss this and debate it. And it's happening, and it's happening in a healthy fashion. But it is never acceptable. It's never acceptable for the church to tolerate abuse. Ever. And we have. And I feel bad about it. If you grew up in a church where you were abused and you went to your pastor and he told you to just submit and go home, he was wrong. And if you are enduring that as a man or a woman, you've got a safe place here. It's enough. And we've used Scripture to allow us to do that. And it's time to stop. This will be a safe place for men and women under the boundaries of Scripture. And not only that, but we are held accountable for the things that we say as pastors. And Lord knows I've said a lot of dumb things. And you all hold me accountable for those dumb things. Heck, you held me accountable for the good things I said. And I appreciate all of that. Um, but um, I know that most of you are not racist. But there are lots of people who hurt over what's happened in the past. It's not enough to say, get over it. We are here to be all things to all people. And I was reminded this week that if we have to humble ourselves and sit with somebody of color as they vent their pain, it's a worthy cause for the gospel. So, it was a good week. Ah, sorry. It's a very good week. The next one is in Alabama. I don't know if I'm going to go there. But uh, I, I will ask the elders in the coming years that I can go again. It was very good for me to be there. Very good for us to have representation there. But I'm here to tell you today that most of the convention is very healthy. And there's a lot of stupid things, and you'll hear about every one of them. And uh, that's okay. That's okay. We'll continue to move forward under the authority of Scripture and the leadership of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that inhabits every one of us. Walk with God. The world needs our Lord. They don't need more of our rhetoric. They need the Lord. <clears throat> First Samuel 24. I told you when we started our look at this, uh, at this book, First Samuel, that the author of this historical book works hard at bringing um, contrasts and comparisons between the characters within her. It started with Hannah. <clears throat> you remember way back, that's the mother of Samuel. Um, she's, the, she's the barren wife of this man, and she, she's brokenhearted over the fact that she can't have, have children, and she pleads with God to give her children. And in the meantime, her husband has another wife, 
who is mocking her, who has children and mocking her. And, and she's in deep pain, but she runs to God, and God answers her prayer with Samuel. There's a contrast between these two, this godly woman with, who's in, in pain and this, this ungodly, evil woman who's not in pain, who's mocking. He moved on to compare for us Eli's wicked sons to Hannah's son Samuel. You remember that, that incredible comparison and contrast of those two. And then there's the central one of the book. There's many of them in there, but just a few to point out that what the author is doing. But there's the central comparison between the religious but self-absorbed King Saul. And I want to remind you, King Saul is religious. He's religious. He invokes God's name when everything's are great. But he doesn't obey God when God asks him to do things that don't make sense to him. This, letter, or this book compares and contrasts a self-centered religious King Saul with a humble, caring, God-loving David. This boy man that God says, of all the characters in Scripture, that's what it looks like to seek my heart. That's what it means when you hear the phrase, a man after God's own heart. <clears throat> it, I, I want to be clear, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone, saved, not saved, religious, atheistic, everybody aspires to greatness, but only few actually achieve it. Most don't achieve it, though, because they get in their own way like Saul did. David, he's the youngest brother among many, and when God tells the prophet that he's about to call another king to lead, he's removed Saul, and he's going to put another king and anoint him, they don't even call David to the fire. Somebody's got to tend sheep, and certainly David is the least to be chosen, but that's the one that God chose. And he carries this through life. He is fully aware that God is going to appoint him the next king at this point, and yet he continues to be humble before the Lord and trust him. Last week I shared with you that becoming God's child is easy. It's the same act as accepting a Christmas gift. It's simply accepting God's offer to take the punishment you and I deserve for our sin and put it on Jesus so that we can be adopted into his family. That's simple. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13 says. But you're familiar with this verse, John 3, 16 and 17. Look at these verses. For, uh, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And I want to point out that that gives you the requirements of salvation. It doesn't say anything about baptism or church attendance or church membership. It doesn't say anything beyond believing in God, realizing you're a sinner and he's the only one that can solve this problem and you run to him. And, and that's easy. It's, like I said, it's like a Christmas gift. You accept a gift that's already been purchased for you. Being forgiven of your sin, becoming part of God's adopted family is easy. But being a disciple, being a, a follower of God, a man or woman who wants to walk like Jesus walked, who wants to be his ambassador in this world, who lives like Jesus, who values the world from God's perspective. Jesus said this about that person. If any of you wants to be my follower, that thing, if you want to go beyond just being a Christian, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. I believe that the reason so few of us who claim to be children of God, and I don't mean us as far as Carpenter's Way, but in general, I think it's like 70% of people in this country, and my stats are off, I think it's between 60 and 70, claim to be born-again believers. The reason that the largest group that goes from 
that goes into the Mormon church, a cult. And I'd be glad to debate that with you at a different time. The number one group that goes into Mormonisms are ex-Baptists. The reason that happens is because people who often claim to be the children of God who are going to see life different than those who do not know God, they must intimately know them. It's a relationship. Most of us who claim, let me try to say it a different way. Most of us who claim to be the children of God have no interest in really walking with Him. Let's just be honest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or evaluate. Just think about this. Most of those who claim to be the children of God in our culture have no interest in really walking with Him or even knowing Him personally or seeking to understand and have the heart for people Jesus does. They came to Him simply to stay out of hell. And because of that, once they say the words or walk an aisle, they walk away from Jesus because knowing Him was never really the point or passion of their moment. It was simply wanting a ticket out of hell. And the ramifications of simply being saved from hell without any real relationship with God is that the religious individual, which I fear represents much of modern Christianity in our culture, they're trying to have their best life now. Yes, that's a reference to a book just written by a pastor. Most of these Christians simply, since they're not going to hell, now they don't have to worry about that. Now they just want to have as good a life as possible with little concern for God's heart, His plan for their lives, or the cost of being a follower of God. There is no godly change in them because they didn't want God, they just didn't want hell. And that won. God never, ever wanted to save us from hell, my friends. Ephesians 1.5, we've already talked about it, says that His plan was to adopt us and make us His kids. To do life and then eternal life with us as our daddy. How's that for a Father's Day thought? Every year I'm reminded before Mother's Day and Father's Day to be sensitive with it and don't push it too hard because there's people out there who have bad dads and bad moms and it brings up pain, people who may have been sexually abused by them. And I understand that that is the case of many of you in here. You're trying to outrun the pain. Well, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to outrun the pain. You're running to the wrong dad. Run to Jesus and his father. He killed Jesus. The father killed Jesus because you were more valuable to him than the life of his only begotten son. He killed Jesus so that you could run to him. He's not like any man you've ever met, ladies. He's not like any father you've ever been around, men. He is the perfect father. And yes, he will ask difficult things of you, but he is worthy of your trust. And most of us don't run to him because we don't know him. We know about him. We know what the pastors teach us, and we know what Beth Moore has written, and we know what, what others tell us, but we ourselves have personally never encountered God outside of the saving experience. So when difficulty comes, when we're scared, when we're afraid, we can't run to him because we don't trust him. He makes bad things happen, and, and this has been a pervasive joke in the church for years, and I actually think it's funny, but it is dangerous. Many of you grew up like me in churches that, that had missionaries that we supported and they would come and share. And many of them, and I remember this as a child, would start their, start their mission sharing event by saying, you know, when I was 15, I gave my life to Christ and I told him that I would do anything he wanted me to do except to go to Africa. <laughs> I'm Mark Wilkie and I'm a missionary to Africa. And everybody laughed. 
Because we all know God asks us to do things that we tell him we don't want to do. I mean, actually, what, what God does is he gives you a heart and a passion for the things he tells you to do. I can make a case this morning that Paul didn't like Gentiles, but he absolutely fell in love with us because that was his task. Men and women, you are not saved from hell as much as adopted into the family of God, and your daddy loves you, and not knowing him makes him dangerous. This thing we are now called to as his kids, a life lived for him rather than ourselves, where we put our selfish ambitions aside, follow Jesus, can only be achieved with any level of success if we know his love personally. If personally we know his goodness and that he is worthy of trust. And as a result of knowing that personally, we will find ourselves trusting him even when we don't understand him or his ways or his path for us. 1 Samuel 24. Here we go. It's more than a day in the life of King Saul and David. It's a picture of what it looks like to believe that God's plan is better, so much better than your own ideas and desires. It's a picture of what it looks like not to do what you and those around you want to do, but instead entrust yourself to God, even if you are aware that it may cost you your life. To do this, to be at this level of commitment where you literally pick up your cross and you follow Christ, you have to know, and I mean know him. Not because somebody else told you about him, because you know him personally. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he, told that he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel, and he went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. As chapter 23 ended, King Saul was creeping up on David to kill him, and you remember word came to him that his own kingdom was under attack. So he had to abandon his nearly successful thing of killing David and go back to, the, to Judah to fight off the Philistines. Well, that's over. And so now he goes back and he takes 3,000 special forces officers with him, murderers, to get David. Verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, as if you know where that is, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. I told you, it's a very practical book. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Coincidence? I think not. God even orchestrates our bowel movements. He is a sovereign God. That, that was a joke, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something serious with it. We have a tendency to think that God only works when 21 children are saved. He works when you get a flat tire on the side of the road in front of somebody who needs Jesus. <laughs> or when you have to go to the bathroom. God is at work. Come on, pastor, that's kind of crazy. It's not. He's that detailed. Now, verse 4. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. This is an interesting Hebrew text. I'm going to get rolling a little bit here. This is an interesting Hebrew phrase because the way it's stated, David's men that are surrounding him, that are giving him counsel, that now God has delivered Saul into your hands, are speaking as if they are prophets. They're actually prophesying to David that God is now giving you a chance to kill your enemy. Go do it. Just a side note. Not every prophetic statement is from the Lord. Sometimes people just make things up to sound smart. This is one of those cases. 
I know some of you are thinking, Pastor, how can you make the case? Because A, he didn't tell David, and B, that's not how this plays out. Prophecy is always 100% accurate. You want to know if somebody's a prophet? They screw up once, they're not a prophet. I believe prophecy still exists today. I believe that the standard of a prophet still exists today. If you're ever wrong, we'll assume you're wrong. You're not a prophet. And these guys were wrong. Very interesting. So David crept forward, listening to them, and he cuts off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But when David's conscience began bothering him, because he had cut, or David's conscience begins bothering him because he had to cut Saul's robe. I know what you're thinking. That's kind of silly in light of all the options that you feel guilty about that. Well, let me try to explain to you what's going on according to Hebrew theologians. Basically, what uh, it was required of the king that he always make a statement that he's dependent upon the Lord. And so the conservative prayer shawls that you often see today, you know, they're worn under the black jackets of conservative Jews. They have the tassels that hang down. It, it was instructed in the, uh, in the law that a king would have to wear that and a prophet. Those tassels represented a dependence upon God. When you would pray, you would rub the tassels. You would hold them. It was invoking God's power. So it was a statement. So it is believed by these theologians that what David does is he goes and he grabs one of the tassels and he cuts it off. In other words, he's making a statement. God has removed you from your throne. This was a statement that David not being a prophet at this stage, had no right to make. And by the way, a prophet never speaks because he has a thought or a feeling or a, a gut emotion. God says, I want you to tell them this. It could be through a dream. It could be through a vision. It could be through the, the angel of the Lord meeting with them. But a prophet spoke when God told him to spoke, and they would say, thus saith the Lord, and, and they would say, I have seen you, and I hold you into, because a prophet didn't speak of his own or her own. A prophet spoke on behalf of God. Therefore, he, could, he or she could speak in the first person. And there were many women prophets as well. He said to his men, so he cuts off, oh, so he cuts off the tassel, and he starts feeling guilty. So let me pick this up in verse 6. He says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to the Lord my king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one. For the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men, and he did not let them kill him. I want you to understand David's view of life in context. David believed that God was truly sovereign in all areas. He committed his life and now his decisions, not upon what he felt was right, but he, was, he believed that God was the only one in charge of everything. That's what it means to seek after God's heart. He actually believed what we just say. The breath in my lungs are God's. So may every breath I exhale praise him. David actually believed that God's ways were better than his own and the desires of those around him, even if he ends up dying because of it. David was fully invested in picking up his own personal ambition crosses, putting them aside, picking up his cross and following God. You've got to grasp here just how much David believed in God and his sovereignty and his plan. Saul was God's anointed king. And although David knew that God was replacing Saul with himself and he could rationalize his killing of the king and his people would have followed him, David realized that he was now taking things into his own hands, that he would be setting his own plan before God. And although, although David was aware that Saul would be replaced, he also believed with all of his heart that only God's hand should remove him. I want you to understand 
To Saul, this was a personal war for his position, protection of what he wanted. To David, he was in the position he was because of God's will in the first place. He never asked to be king. He never asked to be anointed. Even his daddy didn't believe in him. He was called to this task, and he believed, just like Abraham, who was about to plunge the knife into Isaac's chest, that if God would allow the worst thing to happen, he could raise him. That God would make his plans take place no matter what happened to, because of the hand of people. David actually believed what we only dream about believing, that God could handle it. He was in a position he was because of God's calling, and David was so convinced that God's sovereign, uh, sovereignty was in control of all this, he didn't dare take things into his own hands, even if he was tempted to. 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my, to, to my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself was, has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. You think that was a bad day for David? When you know the Lord, and I mean really, really know the Lord as David does, and you realize how much he loves you and how wonderful his plans are in the end, it is then that you realize that he's worthy of your trust every day, no matter how you feel. This is how Abraham was able to lift the knife to Isaac. This is how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could actually take on Nebuchadnezzar. This is how Daniel was willingly thrown into a lion's den. This is how Peter uh, could consider it a privilege to be hung like Christ, only upside down. This is how Paul and the disciples felt it was a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. And how our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in Asia right now are willing to put their life on the line simply because they choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because those people have one thing in common. They believe that God is good and his plans are better in the end than they could ever possibly imagine. And they are willing to bet their lives on it. And many of them do not survive that trust. But boy, oh boy, an eighth of a second after they stop breathing, the resurrection takes place and they experience the presence of the Lord like nobody can, like none of us can imagine. They are welcomed with the crown of Stephen, the Stephanos. It's the martyr's crown. We try so hard to live. And David was willing to die. But not because he had a, a death complex, but because he believed in God. He knew God. Although none of these people wanted this to happen to them, from David to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to Paul, to Peter, to our brothers and sisters in chains, they would rather put their trust in the Lord and die or endure pain, or in David's case, continue to be chased daily for fear of being caught and killed than to take control back and live. To this, to this level of trust, to have that, you've got to know him. And I don't mean 30 minutes a day in the Word at the beginning of the day and then on your knees in prayer asking for your day. I'm talking about knowing him. Knowing him. Personally. Not because Beth Moore or John, whoever, taught you about or because you went to a passion conference and experienced worship, but because you yourself have gotten to know him. And he's revealed himself through you through the Holy Spirit and his word. I'd like to remind you of Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. It, it, could that not be more clear? 
Seek His will in all that you do. And He'll show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. This does not say, if you seek the Lord, He will explain Himself to you. It actually says, do not lean on your own understanding. And that's what David was doing here. What his men wanted him to do, what he probably in his gut wanted to do, was not trusting in the Lord, but to take things into his own hands right then and there. So he ordered his men to stand down. He nor they would remove the one God had seated on the throne over, uh, over the Hebrews. And they watched King Saul reclothe, who had been relentlessly chasing them to kill them, and they watched him walk out of the cave. Because David was more committed to God's sovereign control than he was in living or avenging injustices. Are we? I know that's tough. I know you never want to send me to a Southern Baptist convention again. But it isn't the convention that moved me this week. It's that this has been in front of me my whole life. And I still think I have it all figured out. And I'm realizing I don't even know where it starts. God is so good, you guys. He's so good. He's so good. I just have to start believing it. Watch this. 24-7b. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came and shouted after him, My Lord, the king! <laughs> Please notice all the things that he could have called him. Oh, donkey's behind. Or you wicked evil man, or you big jerk, or big dumb guy, or your highness, failure in chasing me. Lots of names, but instead he says, my Lord the King. And when Saul looked around, David bowed before him? Are you kidding me? Do you realize how emasculating that had to be? All of his guys who just told him to kill this guy are now watching him going, David has lost his mind. Medical marijuana is now part of the Hebrew nation. This guy is not in good shape. It's, this man bows before this evil guy because he was David's chosen king by God. This is what it looks like to want God's will more than your own. Verse 9. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to people who say, I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father. What? He just went from Lord King to Daddy. And in case you're not clear, that was the relationship. Remember, he is the king's son-in-law. And he calls him father. Look, father, at what I have in my hand. A piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you. And I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. Wow. This guy has thrown three spears at this boy for no reason. And David doesn't even accuse him of that. David makes excuses for him. Certainly you're, you're only chasing me because people are telling you I'm trying to kill you. And I'm just here to tell you that I'm not trying to kill you. The truth is David knows that this guy has been trying to kill him since he was a little boy. This has been going on to the best of our guessing about 10 or 15, maybe 20 years. This is a long haul chase. And David calls him dad. He calls him his Lord. And he argues, I'm not trying to kill you. 
This guy has thrown three spears at David. He's chased him all around. And, and I, you, you have to ask yourself, how can he possibly do this? You're about to hear the answer. Look at the beginning of verse 12. May the Lord judge between us. David trusted God to judge. David trusted God to do the right thing. Not to fix this for David, but to do the right thing as he, Yahweh, saw fit. He believed God had a plan and his plan was best. Let's read on. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you. <laughs> I love his tentativeness. He's about to slap him, but he's very gentle. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people comes evil deeds. So you can be sure that I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. Okay, I want to read that last sentence. I want you to look at this. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. Can you think of this same statement ever being made in the Old Testament? The answer is yes. Where? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those three little boys? And they're standing before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, Who? What God is capable of saving you from me? As they feel the heat of the fiery furnace on their back. And these boys, the first time, Zach taught me this, the first time in the whole story they don't call him king or your highness, they refer to him as Nebuchadnezzar. They equalize, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are fully confident that God can save us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow. Are you kidding? Why would we give up our lives for a few more moments in this, on this earth? It sounds just like this. God, he will rescue me from your power. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered his question by God can rescue us. But thank you for the question, Nebuchadnezzar. The answer is God. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. We have committed ourselves to his ways. This is what it looks like to have a heart that seeks after God's will. Not just God, but his will. And remember the Lord's prayer. On earth as it's done in heaven. We pray this prayer without even thinking about it. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let's skip that. On earth as it's done in heaven. We're actually asking that God's will is done, not the Republican Party or the Democrat Party or not the things that we think is fair or not you in justice or social justice gospel. Whatever it is you're going for, not, not fairness with a border wall, whether left or right, not the things you think are fair, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a statement where if you've ever prayed that prayer, you've said, I am committed to your will more than my own. That means you can't kill the king. You can't kill the king. Because that's not God acting on his will. Well, how do I know that God isn't telling me to kill the king? Medication. Calm down. David knew that it wasn't God because God wasn't shy with David. If God wanted David to kill Saul, God would have met with him and said, you need to kill Saul. And it would have been clear that that's what he was to do. It wouldn't have been a hunch, a dream, a thought, a feeling, a gut. It would have been clear. Because over and over in Scripture, when God asks us to do radical things, he shows up in ways that are undeniable. That's why he raised Lazarus from the dead, to make a statement, I really am the resurrection. It wasn't so Lazarus could live again. Lazarus was better off dead because he was more alive than he'd ever been. I think in all the characters of Scripture, and I've told you this, I think the one that got ripped off the most is Lazarus. He had to go through death again. And who knows how long he was wrapped up in that stinky thing. 
Because remember, Jesus had to say, would somebody please unwrap Lazarus? I mean, we have a thought. We keep thinking, and this is our gut. This is what we've allowed to happen to our body. We keep thinking that the ultimate answer to prayer is living. That is not true. The ultimate answer to prayer is living for God in eternity. No eye has seen and no ear has heard what awaits those who love and seek God. Brothers and sisters, what is about to happen to us at the end of this life is so much more amazing than TBN can ever present in the studio. It's, it's, it's not sitting in a, uh, an, I don't know, sterile studio with purple and gold and, and, and cold floors singing hymns all day. It's being home. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. For you. And my place is going to look different than Chris's place. Mine's going to be way sweeter. It's going to look different than Mitchell's. It's going to look different than yours because this is my daddy who's building it for me. Well, that's kind of self-centered. Heaven seems to be about me. Not, not the worship of me, but the worship of God. And he, the daddy, the daddy in heaven seems to be going to build a place for me. Why would he do that? I have been a failure at living faithfully for him because he loves me like a dad loves their kids. Listen, most of us spent a few years being stupid to our dad, but we still love him. And our dads, most of them still loved us. They reached out to us. They chased us. The relationship of father and child is not hinged upon our obedience. It's completely dependent upon their vow and keeping their vow. And God never breaks his vow. What's the vow? I will love you till the day I'm dead. And I hope I die before you. That's the vow of a father. And this father will never abandon you. Actually, that's a verse. I will never abandon or forsake you. Never. Why wouldn't we trust him? Because when people trust God, I hear in testimonies that things go bad. Why wouldn't we trust him? Well, I don't want a bad life. Is it going to be any better without him? How's that working for you? It's still scary. But when you walk with God, it's scary in a supernatural way. Remember when David was a little boy, and I, I, I told you that I, nobody really knows why David ran at Goliath with a few rocks and a sling? And I told you the reason I believed he ran was because he couldn't hardly wait to see what God was going to do against this over-hormoned, over bad breath, ugly man. He couldn't wait, so he ran into him. He ran to him. There was no way David thought for a second that God would allow this bad-mouthing behemoth. You can't say enough bad about this guy, and I'm, I'm, I'm failing adjectives right now, so work with me. There was no way in David's thinking that God would ever allow Goliath to defeat him on the battlefield. And even if he did, that just wasn't part of his equation. Why? Because he can't believe that the Israelites would allow this guy to badmouth their God. He couldn't fathom it. He would rather die defending the God of the universe than live in a world where that was allowed. So he ran to the battle. I don't know about you, but this is a little convicting because I run from the battle. I run to the safety of my home. How shameful for a pastor to say that. I want to be like David. What an incredible story. He trusted God. Verse 24 of Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, this is a second place in the New Testament, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. That's clear. Take a deep breath and read it. These are the words of Jesus. This is the red stuff. 
You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what, what will it benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? This saving us thing was, was not about just keeping us out of hell. It was about making us his kids so that we could have a relationship with him and be about the family business. The relationship that we would discover through our life for those of us who know him. And as you seek him, you'll begin to realize that you can trust him. That he has an amazing plan that is better than our plan, even if it's scary. Look at Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. My thoughts are not like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I mean, this is God talking, and we all know that. We just don't believe it. Are you following me? David believed it. Verse 16 in 1 Samuel 24. When David had finished speaking, I'm almost done. Saul called back, is that really you, my son David? Oh, man, is that, do you want to slap Saul? I love you so much, my boy, my boy. You were the one I wanted to marry my second daughter anyway because I wouldn't give you my first daughter because I was trying to have her kill you. But you're my son. Oh, I just, whack. Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. This guy has hormonal issues. And he said to David, you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Can you not see David look at his boys going, I told you I was better than him. I mean, okay, I'll stop. Yes, you have, amazing, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let this enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for this kindness you have shown me today. Now he's invoking the name of God again. Is that incredible? It sounds like a lot of Baptists I know. God bless me, I no longer have cancer. Was he cursing you when you had it? Oh, I forgot we believe that still. Remember when there was gay marriage in the land and all of a sudden every pastor seemed and every pulpit was telling us God is now going to judge the land? Because apparently homosexual marriage is worse than abortion. I mean, we've been killing, what is it, 100 million babies? I don't know what the numbers are. I'm, I'm going to kill it, but I mean, it, it's incredible. And I want you to know that this is not a godly country. We can't even be, get the church to live like David. This is not a godly country. This is a country with God in, in, in her statement. But this will become a godly country when you and I decide that he's worthy of our trust. Actually, our church will become godly then. And then maybe we can impact Angelina County. And if we can get Angelina County to become an actual God-fearing county where people submit themselves to the Lord, maybe the drug abuse in this county will go down and the neediness. I mean, we'll actually reach out to our gay neighbors or our homeless neighbors or even our illegal alien neighbors and we'll feed them. Maybe we'll take them in. And once we get this, this county fixed, maybe then we can start doing this part of the state, this region, because Texas has five different you know, areas, and maybe we'll get this part of the state taken care of. And once we're done with that, maybe then we'll take care of this, this half of the state. And then we'll go to the whole state. Maybe the whole country will want what we have. But it won't start until we, as God's people at Carpenter's Way Baptist Church, decide that we're going to trust him more than ourselves. And I know it starts with me, and I really, I'm really scared of trusting God. Because my mind tells me that trusting God makes bad things happen, and that is not true. It's not true. Bad things don't happen when you trust God. Bad things happen when we abandon the Garden of Eden. Hope happens when you know God in the midst of bad stuff. And I can go, I can go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and I can look at that, 
And as the world goes, 50 billion years ago, this was all flat. And by some chance, there was a small river that went to the middle of it. It's still down there. And you listen to those people, and I go, my God, it's so good. He did that in about an eighth of a second. And if it wasn't done at creation, it was done after the flood. I mean, look at it. It looks like a big flood. And you can go to the top of Mount Everest or, or watch a documentary on it. I could not make it half the way. But you could go to the top and watch it, and a guy at Mount Everest looks down, and he gets to the snow, and he finds a shell. And he goes, oh, this proves that 17 billion years ago, this was the lower part of the earth. And I'm going, no, it's not. It just proves that the earth at one point had more water on it. And God sent an ark to save eight people. And now he sent his son to save all of us, whoever wants to be saved. Let me be clear. If you do not know him today, he loves you so much. He killed his son. Run to him. Don't run to Baptists. Don't run to the Assemblies of God Church. Run to Jesus. Don't run for great music or good feeling. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Get to know him through his word. Jump into a church. You're welcome here. I can't promise you'll hear what you want to hear, but I will promise you will hear the word, and I'll do the best I can to understand it, and then we'll disagree about it, and we'll work our way through it. Come let us reason together. But it ain't about church. It's about you and God and me and God. And I'm calling my brothers and sisters back to trusting him with the same trust you trusted when you were seven years old and gave your life to Christ at VBS. Now trust him with your life. Trust him with your children. Trust him with your hope. I don't remember what verse I was on. What verse was I on, Kevin? 20? Because i got to end this. And now I realize that you are surely, this is still Saul speaking, now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. This is Saul talking. Now swear to me by the Lord that when this happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back into their stronghold. Uh, Remember we said stronghold is another word for cave. You know why David went back into the cave? Because he didn't trust Saul. He trusted God. And you're going to find out next week why he didn't trust Saul, because Saul couldn't be trusted. Saul breaks into weeping and compassion and softness when things look bad for him, but he becomes a big jerk when he gets his own way. He invokes God's name only when it works in his favor. And he doesn't trust him when it's not. It's Father's Day. So let me just say something about being a child of a father. And every one of us have a father, last time I checked. You want to really honor your father that you love, even if he was a jerk. Become a man or woman of honor. Give that broken man or that wonderful man a legacy. Live in a way that honors his memory, his life, or what he should have been. Your parents have been married five or six times. Be married once. Your family made bad choices, make good choices. Honor the legacy. Live in a way, this life, where you value their memory or what should have been their memory. Cards are great on Father's Day, but you really want to honor your daddy? Live the wisdom that he should have or did teach you. And you know what it is. You're not a fool. And so it is with God. Are you thankful for going to heaven? Are you glad that when you die, you won't have to worry about what happens next? You want to honor your daddy? Don't just come to church and sing songs. Don't send cards at Christmas and Easter to God. I love you so much. Thank you for sending your son at Easter or dying on the cross at Easter and and being born at Christmas. 
How about every day in between from, from Saturday? Uh, let, me, let me try to think through this now. I, don't have, I need Annie next to me because she's my math person. Monday through Saturday. How about living in such a way that honors his, his story? How about being like David and choosing today that no matter what your gut tells you, you're going to trust him? That's how you honor fa- our Father on Father's Day. That's how you honor God. Because you have come to the place where you realize his ways are better than your ways. So you're going to trust him. So Larry, you're going to the hospital this week. For the next three or four weeks, it's going to be rough. But God isn't asleep. You're going to go there, Larry, and you're going to pray for other people because that's what you do. And God had Saul chase David all over the countryside. You don't have a Saul, but you have cancer. God isn't going, oh, I, can, I hope this works. I hope it works because I'd like Larry to get back to living a normal life. God knows exactly what you're going to do in the next three weeks. And it may not feel good, but he's good. He's good, Larry. And you know that because you've told me that. And now I'm telling you, Larry, he's good. And he's going to take care of you, buddy. Julie Jackson, you lost your daddy. You didn't lose him, Julie. He's home. And it's better for him. That empty seat at the table stinks, man. But praise God for hope. He's good, Julie. I know a lot of you. You're hurting. God's good. Bailey and Mitchell, you're about to start a family after you get married. Let me be clear. What a great few weeks you're going to have, month. You're going to spend so much money, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Bailey's going, it's not my money, it's my daddy's money. Van, God bless you. God is so good, you guys. And Mitchell, I know you love the Lord. Now trust him. The hardest part about getting married is, is you don't know what next year, next month, next 30 years holds, God does. And in all of its glory and wonderful times on your honeymoon and all the tragedy and difficulty that will come, don't put each other at the center of your marriage. Put God. We've tried putting our spouses in the center of our marriage, and then somebody goes out and does something stupid. and It doesn't work. For the rest of you, it doesn't matter how the election goes this year. Go ahead and vote. You need to be involved. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. He's the only one you can trust. Even if you die, you win. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? And resurrected three days after his death. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the ultimate father. Happy Father's Day. Now, Lord, help us to become good kids who trust you, not because we understand you, but because we know you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. Um, Have a great day.